Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome uh, to another edition of the uh, COVID-19 update webinars from uh, ICR at uh, Satya Alam NIH. Uh, I'm Christopher Lee. Uh, first, let me uh, wish everybody Selamat Hari Raya. We are on the fifth day of Raya, so it's still very much in the Raya mood. Uh, the parking lot is very empty today, so I guess a lot of people still on leave. Uh, we hope everybody had a interesting Raya this year, very unusual COVID Raya, I guess. Um, the good thing about this Raya is I ate a lot less, uh, not because I had good willpower, because there was no food, no visits, no open houses. So I guess there's some collateral benefit with this Raya. Now, um, today we are looking at, of course, another aspect of uh, COVID-19. Uh, today, I, we must apologize to some degree, it's a bit of a mixed bag uh, because of um, scheduling issues, uh, we have to mix certain speakers together. Uh, we have first of us. We first of all, we'll be talking a little bit about the issues of postmortem and what are the postmortem services in relation to COVID nineteen. Uh, and we'll be hearing uh, from the expert in that area first. Followed by three speakers who will be looking at uh, a very important aspect of COVID nineteen, something that we have talked about a lot. Uh, quite a lot of data has come in from overseas, perhaps not so much from our own local context, but issue of mental health and its problems related to COVID-19, um, especially during the lockdown period. So we will have three other speakers talking on that topic later on in the program. So because of uh, scheduling, scheduling issues, we have to mix uh, the four of them together. Uh, so. In terms of Q&A, of course, the Q&A will happen at the end of the program. So I hope all of you will punch in questions as they come along, especially for the first speaker who will be addressing the issue of post-mortem COVID-19. Uh, the usual logistics and, uh, and the rules and regulations of the webinar remain the same. So I have chosen not to repeat them. I think many of you are veterans. You know where to put your Q&A, uh, where you get your CPD points, and Everything is up there, you can read it yourself. So uh, let me uh, first introduce uh, our speakers and I'll introduce them one by one as they come to the mic. Uh, as I mentioned just now, we will start off in the issue of postmortem uh, in COVID 19. And to address that issue for us uh, is Dr. Ahmad Takizam Hasmi. Uh, he is a forensic medicine specialist at the National Institute of Forensic Medicine at Hospital Kodoko. He has undergone advanced competency program forensic in forensic pathology at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine at Melbourne, Australia in 2019. Uh, we had the privilege of listening to Dr. Hafizam a couple of weeks ago before Raya uh, at the, by the National Mortality Committee on COVID-19 and he was had the opportunity to, we had the opportunity to listen to some of his findings uh, on four very uh, interesting cases. And he certainly made our work at the National uh, Mortality Committee uh, much more fruitful and enlightening. So, without further ado, I'm going to ask Ahmad uh, Hafizam uh, to start off today's proceedings. Hafizam, uh, uh, you, you have the floor. Assalamualaikum and good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you to Dr. Christopher. I would like to thank Institute of Clinical Research uh, for inviting me and National Institute of Forensic Medicine to participate in this particular webinar uh, today. Uh, today, uh, I'm going to share with everybody on high-risk autopsy on COVID-19. Uh, 
uh, that we perform in Hospital Kuala Lumpur. Okay. This is uh, the outline of the presentation for today. Uh, number one, we're going to define the high-risk autopsy. Number two, requirement for the high-risk autopsy to be done. Number three, the post-mortem finding in COVID-19. And number four, conclusion. So what is the definition for high-risk autopsy? The definition for high-risk autopsy is post-mortem examination or, autopsy, or an autopsy of a decedent who had or is likely to have had a serious infectious diseases that can be transmitted to those present at the autopsy, thereby causing them serious illness and or premature death. This includes hazard group 3 pathogens such as uh, what we are talking right now, COVID-19. So what is the requirement for high-risk autopsy? In general, the requirement of a high-risk autopsy evolves around number one, risk assessment. Number two, understanding the pathology. Number three, universal standard precaution. And number four, standard operating procedure for specific hazard group three. In hospital Kuala Lumpur, the requirement to perform high-risk autopsy resolve around number one, legal authorization of that particular autopsy. Number two, planning and protocol for that particular autopsy. Number three, we need to have a fully trained team to conduct the autopsy. Number four, a proper equipment to conduct that particular autopsy. Number five, a proper facility to conduct that particular high-risk autopsy in terms of biosafety level three. And number six that we have in Hospital Kuala Lumpur is an added to, uh, to guide us to perform this particular autopsy is post-mortem CT scan facilities. Okay. In Malaysia, the death investigation, the death investigation around post-mortem or for post-mortem examination can be done either under the Criminal Procedure Code or under Prevention and Control of Infectious Disease Act or Act 342. For legal purposes, for legal, criminal legal purposes, the post-mortem examination has uh, been ordered by the authority, i.e. the investigating police officer under criminal procedure code. Whereas, if that particular issue resolves around public health issue, the post-mortem examination been ordered by health authority under Prevention and Control of Infectious Disease Act, Act 1988. Under Section 16, Act 342, for post-mortem examination order, whenever an authorized officer suspects that a person has died of an infectious disease, he may order the cops to be conveyed to such place as he may appoint for such examination as he may consider necessary. The objective of COVID-19 autopsy under Section 16, Act 342, number one, to address public health issues, that means prevention and control, Number two, to better understand the pathology of COVID-19. And number three, to guide clinicians in terms of treatment. With this, particular, with this particular legal authorization, there is no requirement of consent from the family member to conduct this particular postmortem. This particular postmortem fall under legal postmortem. In HKL, there are 16 positive COVID-19 cases. There are 16 cases that died in the hospital for COVID-19. And from this particular 16 cases, we perform 
four cases under Prevention and Control of Infectious Disease Act. Before we conduct that particular post-mortem examination, we do a proper planning and devise the protocol for that particular post-mortem examination to be done. We, start, we set up a trained post-mortem team. This particular post-mortem team comprised of four or five team members that include of a forensic pathologist, forensic registrar, and also forensic technician. In this particular team, we assign a person to become a clean person. She or he going to become the, the one who going to document the post-mortem examination and she or he or she going to handle all the post-mortem specimen inside the post-mortem room. We also assign a dedicated support team to assist in the post-mortem examination. This particular support team uh, going to the, responsible, the responsibility of the support team, number one, is to check all the PPE that going to be used by the post-mortem team. Number two, they are the one who going to handle all the specimens from the post-mortem room. Number three, they are the one who going to supervise the donning and doffing aspect of the post-mortem team member. And number four, the support team also, one of the member of the support team also going to become the backup member if any eventuality happens in the post-mortem room. For the post-mortem team members, they're going to wear a full PPE level 3 with, together with PAPR. PAPR stands for Power Air Purifying Respirator. So in this particular picture, we can see the support team member calibrating the PAPR that's going to be used by the post-mortem team member. This particular picture shows a, a post-mortem team member with level 3 PPE together with PAPR. This is our biosafety level 3 post-mortem room in Hospital Kuala Lumpur. This particular post-mortem room equipped with negative pressure room, HEPA filter, pass-through pass body freezer, high-definition CCTV, and also a pass-through pass chamber for the specimens. This is the viewing window for observant that can observe the post-mortem examination. And we have high-definition CTV inside the post-mortem room and that particular post-mortem being recorded live. This is our technician, this is our scientific officer handling the aspect of recording of the post-mortem examination. High-risk autopsy such as COVID-19, it is new emergent diseases. So there are a lot of specimens to be taken during post-mortem examination. It is to make sure that part that particular post-mortem being done optimally to answer the medic all the medical questions. So the one who going to handle this particular specimen need to be diligent because she or he going to handle a lot of biological specimens. This is one of the methods, even though, even though we perform this particular post-mortem inside biosafety level 3 post-mortem room with negative pressure, there are still a risk uh, during doing aerosolized procedures such as post-mortem craniotomy. In Hospital Kuala Lumpur, we devise a craniotomy box to protect the operator during the post-mortem craniotomy. This particular craniotomy box uh, is being made by a transparent, uh, transparent plastic and this particular method protect the operator from the dust that being produced by postmortem craniectomy procedure. So, what is our postmortem? What is the postmortem finding for COVID-19? In general, 
from the other literature, the post-mortem features of COVID-19 uh, as widely reported. Number one, diffuse alveolar damage. Number two, severe endothelial injury. Number three, presence of intracellular virus. And number four, uh, thromb widespread thrombus and microangiopathy. Dr. Eric Topol from US already uh, made a systematic literature review through uh, Twitter regarding the finding of the post-mortem examination that been recorded from different countries. Since this particular disease is a new disease, a proper systematic literature review needs to be done to compare the finding of the postmortem from all respective centers. So what is our experience in Hospital Kuala Lumpur? We perform four postmortem cases in which three are males and one female deceased person. The age range from 65 years old to 77 years old and the duration of admission between 7 to 17 days. All the cases having one or more comorbid, and the comorbid are diabetes mellitus, ischemic heart disease, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, and the other one having laryngeal CA. The stage of admission, the stage of admission for COVID-19 range from stage 3 to stage 4. The post-mortem finding that we saw, that we saw during the post-mortem Number one, we can confirm that that particular disease person having the reported comorbid disease. Number two, we can see the spectrum of uh, the spectrum of pneumonia from mild pneumonia to severe pneumonia. The COD that being given from this particular slide is a clinical COD that being given by the respective physician who treat the patient. Case number one. This particular gentleman having multi-organ failure and from this, one, from this particular picture, he was severely jaundiced, indicate that he's having a liver failure. Examination of the, examination of the heart showed a dusky appearance of the epicardium. Cut section of the heart do not show any sign of acute or remote impact and there is a post-mortem clot inside the chambers of the heart. Histology of the heart showed infiltration of lymphocyte over the epicardium of the, of the heart. However, there is no myocarditis seen. Examination of the respiratory system showed there is presence of fluid inside the trachea and bronchus. The fluid yellowish in color and not sticky. Cut sections of the lung, cut sections of the lung showed red hepatization of the lung and iris consolidated and unhealthy appearance, whereas in the other picture showed a normal lung appearance. Cut section of the lung also showed presence of mucus plug inside the small airways. Histology of the lung showed highly membrane formation consistent with diffuse alveolar damage. High power of the high power showed presence of cytopathogenic effect of viral pneumonia of the lung tissues and in some area there are superimposed bacterial infection in which we can see a lot of neutrophil in infiltration in the lung tissues from our from our postmortem finding we did not detect any we did, we failed to detect a thrombus inside the vessels this one showed a blood clot here is not a antemortem thrombus for case 2 we can a case 2 is is a lady having coronary artery disease. 
So post-mortem post examination shows that atherosclerotic changes of the coronary artery and on-cut section of the coronary artery, it, is, it showed that it is totally occluded by the atherosclerosis changes. Cut section of the heart showed dilated chambers with patchy fibrosis and then histology showed evidence of fibrosis of the myocardium. Examination of the airways showed pattern airways with minimal fluid inside the airways, not like the previous uh, case or case number one. Examination of the lung showed the pneumonic changes confined to the lower lobe of the lung, whereas the upper lobe still showed aerated lung. Histology of the histology of the lung showed infiltration of neutrophils into the interstitial and alveolar spaces, but for this particular case, no obvious cytopathic effect uh, detected from the tissues. Examination of the kidney for this particular case showed uh, confirmed that this particular lady having chronic kidney disease. For this particular two cases, uh, we do sample the tissue for RT-PCR. Uh, we do sample tissue for COVID-19 RT-PCR. For case one, uh, we do sample post-mortem nasopharyngeal swab and it is detected for both cases. The trachea swab also showed uh, COVID-19 antigen detected for two cases. Oropharyngeal swab also detected for two cases. Brochial swab detected for two cases. Body surface swab, the antigen also detected for both cases. The swab from the mouth been taken only for the case two and it is detected. Swab around the nose also been taken for the case number two detected. We also swab the ear canal and the antigen been detected. We took vaginal swab, the antigen detected. We swab the lower limb surface and it, the, the antigen been detected. The antigen been detected in the serum. The antigen also been detected in the vitreous humor of the second case. The antigen been detected in the second case of the, uh, the antigen been detected in the pericardial fluid for the second case, but not for the first case. And for pure fluid also, the antigen be the antigen not detected in the first case, whereas it not been taken for the second case. The antigen been detected in the urine for the first case and been detected in the feces for both cases. The antigen also been detected in the ascites fluid for the first case, but not in the second case. The lung tissue, we detect the antigen for the second case, but not in the first case. We detect the antigen in the heart tissue for both cases. We detect the antigen in the kidney tissue for only the second cases. Adrenal tissue for the second cases because the first cases we do not take the adrenal tissue. We detect the antigen in the liver tissue for the second cases. The spleen in the second cases. In the lymph node for both cases and in thyroid only for the second cases. So what is our next step? Our next step, looking at these particular issues, we think that we, we need to explore other pathology diagnostic modality to detect the changes due, due to COVID-19 from the paraffin block tissues. So what we're going to do is uh, we need to send the uh, tissues uh, sample that, that we already fixed in the, uh, we already fixed in the formalin and already in block to a center that can do more pathologic diagnostic work to assist us, uh, to assist us in understanding the uh, pathology due to COVID-19. So in conclusion, we perform high-risk autopsy number one to aid in the current understanding of pathology of COVID-19. 
Number two, to provide valuable information to determine whether the death was direct or indirect result of COVID-19. And number three, the need to develop capacity and capability of forensic services to deal with any future pandemic. Now, this is the reference for this particular presentation today. And I would like to thank uh, the listed uh, person in order, for, in order for me to come up with this particular presentation. With that, uh, thank you. Thank you, Hafizam. Thank you very much. Uh, for I'm sure there are questions, but uh, we have to put the questions at the end. So for all of you who had, uh, who had uh, want to ask questions, please put it on, start putting it down onto paper, uh, or put it onto the Slido, and uh, we'll look at the questions later when we have a Q&A session collectively. So Hafizam, thank you very much. Uh, you can sit back and relax first until the end of the, uh, until the Q&A starts. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, now we're going to move gears a little bit and uh, move on to the issue of mental health. Uh, uh, so put aside the postmortem now, okay? Uh, now, to do look at the mental health issues, we have three uh, experts looking at different areas of mental health uh, in the country, and I will introduce them uh, one by one. And obviously, they will look at different aspects of this wide, big area of, of mental health uh, during the pandemic. I think a lot have been written about this in a lot of literature overseas. Um, but I think in our country, we, we are certainly a bit behind in terms of uh, documenting these, these issues. Uh, first, let me introduce uh, Esther. Now, Esther Tio Siang-Ching is the president of the National Council of Defenders in Malaysia. As a potential defender, she was given a full year's training in 2007 in this area. Uh, after that, she pledged herself to be a defender in 2008. She has since been serving in the EXCO of both Defenders JB and at the National Council, uh, at the National Council of Defenders. She is also one of the past chairperson of Defenders JB uh, and six years as a vice president in the National Council. And she has been the chair since uh, 2016. So uh, obviously she's very experienced in providing uh, mental health support at the community level. Uh, so uh, we, I'm sure we will learn a lot from her perspective. So Esther, uh, welcome again to the webinar. Uh, you have the floor. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you. Eh? So I straight come to Befrienders Worldwide. Befrienders Worldwide, eh? what are we doing? We are, what are Befrienders Centers offer and how they operate are summarized in a statement eh, called the Eight Point Charter. And it was started in England, 1953, by Venerable, by Reverend Chakwara. The Befrienders Center from point number five of the eight-point charter, the Befrienders Centers are non-political and non-sectarian, and the volunteers do not seek to impose their own convictions on anyone. Now, in 45 countries, 500 centers, and the number is keep on increasing proportionally to the demand of our communities worldwide. Yeah? And as mental health issues, we know that it affects much younger age nowadays. And our volunteers offer the three A's and one C, that is the anonymity, Anonymity is both uh, to both parties. Volunteers and callers do not need to give their names as per their identity card. They don't have to give their true names. And availability, we mean service hours offered by each center. For example, Befrienders Seremban, they offer their service from 7 p.m. to 10 
p.m. daily throughout the year with no holidays. And the same go to Befrienders Care offer 24 hours and no holiday too. Yeah, every center will be the same, but their service hour are different. And for acceptance wise, we mean huh, in befriending, we mean accept every caller for who they are, for who they are. We are non being non-judgmental. We separate the being and the doing. Every caller to us is the same, although we might not like or in favor of their doing, of what they are doing. Then confidentiality actually is our trademark. From point four of our eight point chapter, it stated the fact that someone has been in contact with a center, whether by telephone, letter, visit, or any other means is confidential. So too is everything revealed by or about the person. Befrienders Malaysia started in uh, 1970, started in KL. Yeah? And now we have nine centers, Kuala Lumpur, Penang, Ipoh, Malacca, Seremban, Johor Bahru, Kota Kinabaru, Moa, and Kuching. Kuching uh, is, uh, started in 2018 and now it's going to two years old soon. For Kuala Lumpur, already 50 years. So these, uh, there are some volunteers. Huh? more than 50, uh, about 50 years, in 50 years in befriending service. And the name one of them is our national advisor, Mr. Ganganara, is with a befrienders KL. If without this MCO, we will have formed Trangano. We, have, we will have one befrienders Trangano, but because of this MCO, we have to hold on. And we are very grateful to have professionals like Dr. Rohayati Muda, Dr. Lim Pokwan, and a popular Chegu Muhammad Asmi, who helps to initiate this forthcoming project in Trinanu. And we are looking towards it. When we come to this table of services. This table of services is for MCO period. During the, before the MCO, our normal befriending services are through phones, emails, WhatsApps, and face-to-face -face befriending. But during MCO, we have to do some adjustment. So during MCO, some centers are, are, uh, are totally unable to operate as they are in the red, situated in the red zone area of the COVID-19. So every center, every center try their very best to adjust and adapt to, uh, to, new, to new modes of befriendings so as to be accessible and available to the callers. So we have services, we have services like this uh, Skype, WhatsApp, these are temporary services, yeah? And the phone number here is also for the temporary use. And we can have all these, uh, we also, for, we like to thanks to our Malaysian Communications and Multimedia Commission, MCMC, the eight companies, the eight companies uh, shown here, who have collectively and generously offer free calls from the public to all the befrienders, yeah? to all befrienders centers in Malaysia. This offer gives a great relief for the callers, a great relief financially to the needed callers. Uh, one of the reasons is a caller might not only call one time, they call many times and they even become a regular caller. So for this, for this statistic, before, before normally we, 
I take it from one center uh, because I stationed in Befrienders Jobaru. So I take it from Befrienders Jobaru. In uh, last year, we have three, five, six uh, in March, the number of calls for the month. And April, we have 371, and May, we have 430. This, this number is only through phones, uh, excluding the other modes of befriending. So nine centers are average out is uh, 3,000 plus, three to 4,000. During MCO, uh, the figures uh, are almost double, almost double, or uh, more than double, because uh, MCO period really, really needs a lot, and our volunteers have to work harder. So befriending service. Befriending services during MCO, CMCO, what's the difference? We still based on our three A's and one C, but it's a great difference now uh, in a way that anonymity and confidentiality is almost still the same, no change. But for acceptance and availability, yeah, I have to talk some, uh, speak about this. Uh. So for acceptance, not only callers, uh, not only callers, we befrienders have to accept the situations and have to adjust accordingly. So as to be so as to have our centers being accessible eh, and available to the callers. That's why just now I showed the table is a modes of uh, modes of befriending also changed eh, mostly online. And come to these different types of caller. Yes, there are many different types of caller. I before that I come to availability. I'm very grateful to all our nine centers. Eh, work very hard to find new ways, new ways and new methods uh, to, to ensure their service are available. And our, some, our volunteers, also numbers of volunteers, some volunteers cannot come over because our family members get worried. So our, we also reduce our number of volunteers and also to abide to the rules, uh, to the SOP that uh, distant, distant so the, um, social distancing so we also reduce our number of volunteers and we come to these new issues or topics uh, shared by callers uh. during this time we face is mostly they have this new issue is family conflicts family conflicts are uh, parents uh, indoors and siblings because normally when before mco they are able to go out go out they have uh, they are, have their own space and now they are all locked in a in a family in a house under the same roof so the space and they and they haven't get to this so they have this conflict and this conflict is rather serious some some are rather serious and number two is like jobs huh? jobs jobs wise also an issue they have no income some they said they lost their job some they have a stable job um, to cover up but now suddenly they have they have no more income and point and number three is like, like well-being well-being also affected their get their anxiety they are so anxious they call up they say their anxiety level um, is increasing um, before that they say it, actually he also suffer from anxiety but now uh, it's getting serious and point issue four, I can find that is like time when they have a doctor appointment. They find that doctor appointment, they are not able to go. They're a bit worried, but when, they are, when the time comes, they are able to, to, 
to go to the hospital, they find that it's rather time-consuming and rather inconvenient. And when they reach the hospital, they met the doctor. The doctor seems um, not as oh, the doctor seems don't have much time to be on to be with them. So they quickly hurriedly take the medicine and come back. So they call up befrienders to talk about it. But anyhow, they feel happy to have done their part to have made the appointment and they feel good after talking to befrienders is that they anything they feel not so comfortable they can just talk to befrienders some now online now during mco there are many counseling professional counseling um, counseling line on uh, for accessible for callers and they also try they also try out and they find that um, the, the feedback from them is very good and very informative and they call up with friends. So I just wonder why I asked him. He said, now you're very happy. He said, yes, I'm very happy. But I still call befrienders. It's because uh, to professional, they have to like more, more uh, quoted as like well-behaved. Right? To befrienders, they find that they can, they can talk more easily. So there is uh, some issues of this uh, from the callers. And one of it is the festive season issue. Festive season issue is started from like Qingming. Eh? Um, most cannot go to the graveyard place to have prayers eh? or to temples. So, but they they still can. They although they ventilate a bit, but they don't not not that affected lah. And for the Hari Raya and for all the, this festive season that they cannot go back, they cannot go back home. They have to stay alone or. Some they some they did manage, uh, but most of them they can get over it uh. They can get over it because they can still. I I told them. I mean, you are not alone now. Uh, you can call, and then there are many helplines also beside befrienders. So in Malaysia, they are all very rather lucky. Uh. And come to this, I find that uh, the unique findings for this the different states of mind from the callers before MCO and during MCO is most callers are anxious and they are more doubtful, concern their strength of sustainability. They find that now they can like firstly starting MCO, they find that they find that at the moment they still can get excited, but after the MCO keep on extending, they, they doubt their sustainability ability. They wonder they can cope or not. And for this, befrienders, for befrienders, uh, befrienders, we are trained volunteers. Uh, and some doctors and psychiatrist professionals are also, uh, also join us as befrienders. And from our eight-point charter number seven, uh, centers may on certain requests the advice of professional consultants. So befrienders are always working with uh, professionals, uh, doctors all. And for number eight, in appropriate circumstances, callers may be invited to consider seeking professional help in addition to the support offered by a center. That's why we have in our center, in every center, we have a reference book. And in the reference book, we have professionals contact. Because sometimes we find that some, some part that we really can't, not only the emotional support that we can give, we, we will advise them. I mean, we were. Uh, give them the option to seek professionals help.
and we give them our the contact. So for for example, in Befrienders JB, we have we have Dr. Siva, Dr. Benjamin Chang, and Dr. Abdul Kadir as our consultants. And Dr. Abdul Kadir is also one of our national advisors. So from here, I really uh, hope that um, doc doctors uh, from all from all, all professionals in the health departments can join Befrienders or can work together with Befrienders for the well-being of our community. Yeah, with this, I thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm sure there are a lot of questions uh, for you later on. I'm a bit suspicious now. During the as the MCO went on, my wife kept asking me to go to work. So maybe it's maybe I'm the stress at home for her. Don't tell her about the kids. But maybe uh, if my wife might want to ask questions afterwards too. Now, uh, uh, so Esther, hold on. Thank you very much. Uh, we will move on to the next speaker first and uh, address the questions collectively afterwards. Uh, next up, we have Dr. Ahmad Roshtam bin Mohammad Zain. Uh, he is the consultant licensed psychiatry, uh, psychiatrist at the Sultana, so, uh, Hospital Sultana Bahia in Alostar. Uh, he will talk about the mental health demons and how to overcome the challenges ahead. Uh, I'm pretty interested in this because I've got tons of demons inside there. Uh, so uh, I saw you just now, Rostam, you are ready? Thank you uh, so much, uh, Dr. Chris, for, for the opportunity to talk. So uh, I have a very interesting topic to discuss today, but I have 15 minutes. I'll make it very short and to make sure that everyone of you out there understand what's actually the salient point for us to cater when we, we are dealing with our patient and client where, uh, when they come to our clinic. So uh, when, we are, when we are talking about COVID-19, we are talking about storm, an unusual storm, something that all of us has never experienced before, that caused lots of problems to all of us, regardless of uh, how we, 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 we see it. So from our point of view, it's actually very interesting uh, to, to say that uh, every single one of us uh, seeing this, perceive this storm differently, perceive this storm differently, and we are having problems to really uh, making sense of what actually happening because no one has experienced it before as I said right so uh, uh, moving forward uh, when we talk about this COVID-19 and PKP and also PKPB and everything we are talking about loss so uh, all of our clients of all of our patients that come to us they have lost something during this period of COVID-19 whether it's about their freedom whether it's about their connection with people whether it's about opportunities whether it's about income job help and lots of things so every single one of our patients and clients actually very special in their uh, own sense and they are uh, uh, really uh, to have our uh, really have to uh, to have our ear to listen properly what's actually they are trying to bring forward because as i said every single one of them is special so if you are uh, uh, trying to make sense of what of all this loss, because if I'm talking about the loss, actually lots of things. There are people that is actually having the COVID-19 infection by themselves. There are quarantine people. There are people that need to be away from their family. There are people that is actually not allowed to come to, uh, to see their patient, uh, their family that is sick. And there are so many problems. Every single one of them is actually important to their point of view. But maybe for us, it's actually very small things. But uh, if you go through all the cases that we have been seeing while uh, we are covering during this period of COVID-19, you can see that lots of patients that come to us uh, presented with lots of anxieties. 
because we know that this is a, a period of uncertainties. So period of uncertainties causes lots of anxieties because, because people don't know how to handle, people don't know how to face this properly, and people uh, at the same time, people are losing a lot of things. So there, 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 are, there is a psychological process that's going through uh, the minds of our, our patient and client. And what we call this is actually a process of grieving or bereavement. And I would like to pre uh, present to you a uh, uh, process of bereavement that's actually introduced by Kubler-Ross many years ago, which involved uh, uh, five stages. Number one is shock. Number two, anger. Number three is bargaining. Number four, depression. And number five is not included in the slide, which is acceptance. And that is actually what we are trying to bring our patient to, which is accepting the fact that we are going through a very difficult period, which is COVID-19. So uh, if we see our patient, including our frontliners, they are going through all these stages of uh, grief. There are lots of people uh, show their shock, their anger. They are, they are trying to uh, bargain with the authorities. They are trying to bargain with the doctors. They are trying to bargain to, with everyone uh, to get things that they, they think is very important for themselves, even though they know that it's not, uh, it's, it's dangerous. For example, I can give you essentially people who are trying to cross state, uh, even though uh, the, the ministry already tells us that you cannot cross state. Uh, for, for me, it's actually one of the stages of uh, grief that, or bereavement that people are going through. They are trying to make sense of what's actually happening. They are trying to make things uh, more normal for them in this period of abnormalities for everyone, even to, for us too. So uh, when we see our patient or our client, essentially we are seeing people who are going through grief, going through grief properly. So uh, how to handle them? It's actually our ability to really listen uh, to what actually they are telling us. So how we want to recognize this is actually by going through what kind of loss they are going through. So I already listed out there uh, different uh, domains of loss that people can go through and we can check on ourselves uh, that we also experience certain kind of loss during this COVID-19 period. So uh, when we are talking about grieving, when we are talking about uh, loss and everything, there will be a breaking point for everyone because uh, we don't know uh, uh, our mental fortitude, we don't know the level of uh, strength that we have, resilience that we have, and we must remember that every single of one of us has a different uh, mental fortitude or their, their defense psychological that they have. So every one of us has, has their own breaking points whether it's actually external breaking points or internal breaking points. When I say about external breaking points, it can be about the social support that they have at home. Because uh, many of us out there, uh, we live with the family or friends or some, someone very close to us. So all this is actually the social support that we have. But we must remember that uh, during the PKP, especially during PKP, many people cannot move outside from their home. And what happens actually, they are living with their, uh, a broken social support in their home, in their vicinity. And that's actually a, 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 a kind of stress to themselves. So for many of us, we think that if you are staying at home, you must be happy. But there are a small amount of us, small uh, uh, part of us that especially not happy staying at home. And they need to go to work and they need to go out because house or their home is actually the uh, the source of their stress or pressure. And then we must uh, remember that uh, aside from the breaking points of social support, 
we are talking about uh, other external factors such as jobs or opportunities or income or uh, uh, the social service that they get uh, when they are going through this PKP and everything. So all of this can be the point where our patient or our client breaks. And on top of that, we have our own internal uh, defense or psychological defense and everything, which is uh, some, of the, some of it, uh, such as our coping styles, is totally different. There are people that have a, what we call as uh, uh, abnormal or inappropriate coping style, such as uh, they are using substances, they, are, uh, they smoke a lot, they use uh, uh, drugs, uh, or they do things that's more dangerous, such as overeating themselves, uh, not doing anything at home. And they can be people who cope through anger, which is very dangerous. And that's why we, we noticed that there are reports who say that uh, domestic violence is increasing during the PKP period because of, uh, there are people who cannot cope properly and they are venting uh, their anger even towards the, the loved one, which is at home in front of their eyes and everything. So and on top of that, we have other internal uh, coping, or which is uh, our spirituality, our personality traits, and other things that essentially help us to really hold on during the storm. But unfortunately, not all of us can really sustain the pressure that we have after months of uh, inactivities, after months of PKPs, after months of uh, no income, after months of pressure from outside the home and outside. So all of this can make people break. So what happens actually when people break, uh, there are a few symptoms that they can present to us. Number one is actually psychological symptoms, which is uh, totally, uh, I would say that many of us can really cater or we can really uh, identify. Number one, uh, anxieties. Anxiety is actually the most common presentation to all of us, uh, even among our frontliners in which they come uh, with uh, their worries about uh, getting themselves infected with the COVID-19. They are worried about their, uh, the health of their family members outside. They are worried about everyone. They are worried about strangers. They are worried about their, their daughters, their children, everything, everyone. So that is the one of the most common. Even actually uh, one of the review paper that I've read through, they say that anxiety is actually the most common psychological uh, uh, manifestation in the COVID-19 COVID uh, episode. And as I told you just now about the process of, of, of grief and bereavement, we are talking about different kinds of psychological uh, presentation. Uh, aside from the uh, anxieties, we have anger, anger problems. We have uh, bargaining, which is people can bargain in a good way or a bad way. And there are people who go through a piece, episode of depression. And especially this, this point of depression is very important. Uh, in the sense that uh, we must remember that lots of, lots of people that need to be to stay at home, they are having that pressure on their own. And especially the, the most important group is actually uh, among our postpartum ladies, postpartum mothers, in which uh, they don't have the kind of support that they have before. Before this, maybe after we uh, a mother delivered their child, they have lots of visitors, they have lots of help outside, but now they need to be alone at their home with their husband that may be working outside and they don't have the support that they have. So it, this can also uh, worsen their uh, depressive uh, symptoms and everything. So I, I don't say that it can cause increase of uh, uh, the incidence of uh, postpartum depression, but it can increase the risk of postpartum depression. So how we want to help our client or our uh, patient that come to us with all these kind of issues? As I said just now, number one is actually our ability to identify 
what kind of losses that they have gone through. So that is the, the most important thing. Because once we are able to listen to their loss, we are actually able to empathize with them, able to gauge what, are, what is their, their problems. And at the same time, by able to listen and empathize, it's actually helpful for most of our patients. They don't want our advice most of the time. They want our ears to listen to what is the, actually their, uh, their, their difficulties. Uh, uh, number one, identify. Number two, empathize. And then number three is actually uh, our ability to offer uh, what we call as low-intensity psychotherapy or psychoeducation. What we, I said, uh, what do I mean by psychotherapy is actually supportive psychotherapy. Supportive psychotherapy does not need you to train yourself for a certain specific kind of psychotherapy. It's actually the ability to listen and the, the ability to reciprocate back to our patient the ability to reciprocate back to our client about what actually they are trying to tell us because when people know that they are being understood, they are more open to be better in a sense. Most of our patients that come to us does not really need medication, but they need the psychological support, which is actually psychotherapy or supportive psychotherapy, or in a layman's term, I would say that talk therapy. So aside from that, of course, when we know what, what are the losses, we can help them to build up certain kind of resilience because resilience is very important in this very, very trial times, right? right? So how to able to uh, really control the anger? So as I said just now, anger management is one of the big issues during the PKP. How to help them to manage the anger properly? How to help them to manage their emotional, negative emotional, uh, neg negative emotional emotion properly. How to help them to make better decisions rather than we give the decision to them. So all of these things, even though it's actually very small, uh, uh, very minute, it's actually very important to our customers and uh, to our uh, clients and also our patients. So I would say that that's the few things that uh, uh, pertinent to to us, the the uh, uh, the frontliners to help uh, our patient in this trial time. Uh, with that, I thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Amarosta. Thank you. Uh, I think you brought up many issues that I think uh, would explain some of the experiences that Esther spoke about earlier. Um, uh, clearly, I think uh, the pressure on the community at large is significant. I think one major factor, obviously, in terms of loss uh, would be loss of income. Uh, and being a clinician, even in the last two months, when I bumped into all patients at the hospital, uh, whenever we talk about how are things with you, they are not as worried about their health. I guess they come to collect their medicines, they are reasonably okay. But most of them will always bring up the fact that they are worried about whether next month they can pay the rent for the house and whether there will be food on the table. Of course, in the public hospitals, we are looking at those group of patients who probably are uh, not earning as well as those in the private sector. So clearly, I think that's uh, one of the main areas. You also alluded to the fact about the stress and the mental pressure on healthcare providers, and I think that's extremely real. Um, so I think we're going to move on to the third speaker, and uh, it's a bit of a stress for me because uh, I must thank Dr. Ravi for informing the Secretariat that I may not need to pronounce his full name. But I'm a man who likes to live dangerously. I'm going to pronounce the name exactly as it is. So I'm going to introduce Dr. Ravi Varma Rao Panya Sevam. Did I get it right? <laughs> uh, yeah, 
Ah, that's kind of kind of. Hang the right on me. Oh dear, I'm gonna try it again. Doctor Ravi Rama, brow panel silver. Okay, I assume he's right. Okay, from hospital maybe. Okay, uh, Doctor Ravi, thank you very much. And he will be talking about the psychological impact or psychological issues on healthcare workers. Uh, and uh, as somebody who has worked on the front lines uh, before, uh, and I think especially during SARS about nearly 20 years ago, uh, I totally identify with this. Uh, so, uh, Ravi, uh, you have the floor. All right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Chris. And uh, hello, everybody. Let's get this. Uh, let's get this started. All right. Uh, okay, can you guys see the screen first? Just would like to be sure of that. Yes, we can, we can. All right. So, uh, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity and to talk about what happens to healthcare workers. It's actually sort of like a catch-22 situation. We can't actually um, go anywhere from this because uh, while others stay at home, we have to stay at work. That, that, that invariably puts us at a much higher risk uh compared to anyone else uh, Ravi, uh, Ravi, we, we need you to share your slides oh, it's now, it's now it's in presenter view oh it's sharing presenter view is it correct, all right correct, yes. okay then you get to see all my notes hold on let me uh adjust okay. that we are good now right uh, is it okay yeah all right uh okay so uh while the others actually sort of uh had uh, to stay at home, we we had to go to work and that puts us at an increased risk. You meet people, you meet clients, and uh, and of course you meet people, uh, people who actually may be harboring the virus. So that is a unique situation. And I have to thank Dr. Rostam and Madam Master for putting, for setting the stage so I might not need to explain that much on what we can actually uh, anticipate. So this talk, this 15 minutes or so, I'll be just talking about how healthcare workers are affected, why they could be possibly affected that way. And more importantly, I think I'll spend more time in explaining what we can do to help healthcare workers as, as a whole, all right? And um, it, in a rather oxymoron way, most of these effects are very much masked. You might not actually see it in your healthcare provider, whether you're seeing someone or whether among your colleagues, but after lots of work that's been done, this is just papers that were surrounding the uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. We are affected directly or indirectly and the common emotions and the situations that we are affected is distress, depression, anxiety and insomnia. They range between 20 to 30 or odd so percent of the, the groups of people when they're tested. The depressive symptoms, they might not need be disorders. Uh, the data, the preliminary data we have in our country also sorts, uh, sits around this area as well. So why does this happen? Um, mainly there's a lot of exhaustion that goes around. It's where not just, um, it's, it's not just work, it's not just usual work, it's usual work plus extra work. The availability and inavailability of PPE is, a, is an exhausting thing. And the way we have to change our work is also it can also exhaust us, especially in the terms of that some of our services are going online and, and all of that. And the media enthusiasm and reporting things like healthcare worker clusters and the difficulty sometimes is very much unhelpful. And besides all of this, the whole fear of being infected and the fear of infecting others 
that affects us. And the stigma that we suffer because we work in healthcare, healthcare, I think in Singapore, I think there were a few uh, newspaper articles, I know people who were going in, uh, who were, were, not, were shunned away from public transport, and there is an element of moral injury. And that moral injury, that, that came very early on in the pandemic uh, that was reported in the BMJ, it's that what is the fact that we have to do something that w where, which does not be, uh, that is not consistent with our ethics as well, with our the way our uh, world we will be usually treating, and most of the times this happens at various degrees. At some places, it's um, much. At some places in the world where they're not so prepared for the pandemic, it's much worse. But sometimes, even seeing a client on a regular basis, like for myself, uh, if I see someone who has uh, probably a neurocognitive disorder or dementia, I can't be prescribing the usual OT and the usual. Uh, uh, methods of uh, treatment as uh, as because of the whole policy of physical distancing etc so that's that and of course support the level of support the person a healthcare worker has got from the beginning and how it has, it has progressed especially during and even after the pandemic also determines how the distress or how the psychological response will sort of be and there are many factors that affect this, and um, they um, researchers and people who have studied this have ex examined the uh, social demographic factors, uh, uh, age, gender, and of course the different reasons. If you're much older or someone who's not used to, um, uh, or if you're much younger or lacking experience, it, it it goes both ways. If you're younger, you might have not lived through the SARS um, as to the size uh, the SARS epidemic time so that that would mean you have less resilience in handling a pandemic so in Singapore those who have actually gone through the SARS uh, the SARS episode they were found to be more resilient compared to those people who are just coming on coming new on onto this uh, as a, and also where where you're working you could be someone who's working the front line someone who could be actually working uh, in other departments and that also affects how you um, how you respond to it. Sometimes we, we tend to believe that, oh, just if you're working in the thick of it, you're a frontline, you're seeing patients with COVID, that's when you'll be mostly stressed. But when Lee and colleagues in China actually did uh, this work on vicarious traumatization, they actually found that the group that was not in the frontline or the support group people, the, which, which I like to call them the penumbra group, the, the often forgotten other department staff, they were actually found to be more stressed because uh, well, probably because support doesn't reach them, and actually they're picking up a lot of workload. When we had when when we had to uh, deploy people into the COVID wards, the rest of the work did not actually reduce. It was just that for less number of people to do so, and that too. And um, when are you at the pandemic, and where are you at that time? Meaning, at the early of the pandemic or middle, or what's the situation in your hospital? Time matters here as well, and um, and how supported were you before? And situations at home, geopolitical, social situations, your financial situations, all also affect your response and why are you at a particular place. Sometimes people are being um, sort of ordered to work at certain places and you know they're not actually going willingly and that can itself is sort of a distress that can form on them. So if to say what affects you, it really matters where you are. It's like riding a wave. Sometimes you're very affected, sometimes you're less affected. Knowing all this is quite important because uh, it will help us recognize and also to help us deal with these challenges as well. Recognition is sometimes quite difficult because um, sometimes we ourselves are not aware of our own challenges in some, uh, uh, or whether we are in distress and there are 
that it will come in a bit in, a, in, the, in the next couple of slides. And, um, and if you know someone is having distress, what do you do? Do you straight away bring them to a psychiatrist? Do you, what, what kind of help do you do? So there's a spectrum of challenges and the help that people meet, need in this process. And sometimes people can also recognize when they can do some self-report and that actually sort of helps as well. So this is something that I, when I was preparing for this, I spoke to one of my friends who's working in a, in a COVID-19 one, not my hospital, a different one. Um, she said this, actually, um, she said that it's not managing COVID that is hard, it's managing the responses and the fear that comes about it and the, and the subsequent unhelpful responses that come. The, and also the, uh, that is what, so that's really what shows the important, that really uh, underpins the importance of our, uh, the reason we are doing this topic and why we must support people and help them through their distress. And uh, healthcare workers fall into this trap often. They think that they have to give all, do all. This is actually a marathon and in order to get out of this or get through this, we really need to look after ourselves. So that, look after ourselves and look after our colleagues as well. So we can't technically, be very self-sacrificial as well. So in that context, I organized this part into what we can do for ourselves, the people around us, and most importantly, what organizations can do. And I mean organizations, they can mean the hospital, the department, um, as well as um, uh, your GP setup, your local pharmacy, anywhere that goes, and finally, a bit about the system. And uh, if we look at the way we respond to psychological issues with regards to COVID, Predominantly, uh, what we have found by experience locally, as well as uh, with fellow colleagues and as well as literature, say, it's not really just with, if you have psychological distress to see a mental health professional. There's a lot of other things that you probably would want to do uh, that actually seems to work much better. So let's start with self. Um, we, as healthcare workers, need to realize that Stress, being stressed is not a sign of weakness. You're going through, it's, it's, if you want to look at it as a good analogy, it's, it's, like, it's like climbing, a, it's like driving a car on top of a hill. You've got to put in more petrol. It's going to, you need more fuel. You might need to recharge a bit. Uh, you need to go and, uh, so that whole idea that this is a difficult time, that, that acceptance of that, it really sort of helps. So then you start looking after yourself, your needs, taking breaks is okay, staying connected with friends. Uh, communicating your distress and communicating your unhappiness, that's actually an art that we fail to do. Sometimes we, have, we, have, we stay quiet in reasons of being polite and then something keeps happening and irritating us. Uh, but also there's also the other extreme where we lash out and actually by lashing out, we actually hurt ourselves. So constructive communication is something that we do need to be mindful and we need to learn about and it's quite helpful. And wherever you are in the healthcare spectrum, wherever you do work, you can be an attendant, you can be pharmacist, you can be, you can be working in the eye clinic, wherever you are, your work matters at this moment. I think honoring your service and accepting that you are important at this point is actually one of those best that we can do for ourselves because we all form part of the puzzle that actually helps us to solve and get through this pandemic. And at that same time, we also need to accept and also respect the differences that people may go through in coping. And from time to time, at least in a day or just check in with yourself whether you're doing okay and get help. It's okay to get help. And uh, I'll talk a bit about that when we come to the organizations bit. And while we are looking after ourselves, it's also important to keep an eye on our fellow colleagues, people around us, actively checking in. You might want to use technology for this. 
and 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 also talking about getting help and also helping people get help is often something useful asking are you okay now can be very very valuable and now coming to the last the, the bigger bit of it what organizations can do so we have talked about self-care we've talked about care for others organizations need to facilitate that these things actually happen and they can do it in two ways one is a structure of psychosocial support which uh, i'll talk a small bit but more importantly how equipped uh, how and and continuously we go on to getting ourselves equipped in facing the pandemic is actually important uh, we need to build a sense of safety people need to feel safe to come to work people need to be communicated well and that is one of those things that matter this is some things that we have done in miri which basically we need to look at every aspect of how we work how our policies work you might need to revise policies you need to make sure that they are clear and they're comprehensive they do need to cover every small tiny details you can't say okay do phone consultation and you don't actually tell how to do it you don't even have phones so you gotta really spell those things out and then when you are trying to build policies it's important as people who write or people who make decisions you actually go go down to the grassroots and actually listen and listening is not just hearing as this nice caricature i i've sort of like uh, found this online but I remember this from a talk many a uh, few years ago from on how to listen and and it's also important for us to when we communicate we have to be really sure whether uh, whether that communication has happened the biggest uh, 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 problem is we have we live in this illusion as though it has happened uh, you know as though okay people have understood that you have given a, a set of uh, a set of uh, instru a set of uh, instructions and oh okay we have sort of understood sort of people get what you do and then when you try to implement it hey, it doesn't seem to match so actively communicating communicating information as it happens because things are evolving and uh, it has to be also communicated in a bite-sized manner. Giving too much info is also a little bit dangerous because people just don't have the attention span to do that, to actually, especially when you're stressed out. So, and so that when you implement, you should be ready to revise as you go. And it's also important, I put this picture because I put some of our senior, uh, senior AMOs are helping leaders or people who are managing need to also get on ground from time to time when you want to implement policies. So policy implementation has to happen in a way that it's not siloed, it's not distant, and it doesn't cause as though that uh, uh, doesn't cause a further divide that can actually happen. And managing this is essentially the most one of the most important things. Resources, especially PPE, uh, the lack of it can cause a lot of distress. And commun openly communicating, let's say this PPE is running short, you've got to really tell people that, okay, this is happening. What have we done about it? And the information and the information itself is helpful. And once people feel safe, they will be very self-efficacious and they can be confident in giving support. And so that this I particularly would like to just put it as a slide so that the, 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 at least the one take home is just manage this quite well. And I think that would be quite helpful. And this is a bit of what you have in organizations like hospitals and uh, we, you have a mental health psychosocial support uh, this kind of framework is there in most Ministry of Health hospitals and uh, any any outfit uh, even uh, health clinics also have that uh, this is our structure in Miri so it may seem a little bit elaborate compared, uh, but it, it sort of grew as we as we started working through the pandemic you had to focus on needs you could be technologically driven you should be because uh, 
in, in line keeping with the physical distancing. Interventions need to be evidence-based. And you also, we on part of these people who run this kind of services, uh, we, we also have our own clinical load. So when we do this, it's actually extra, a bit of extra, there's a lot of extra work. So we need to actually build capacity. So this is how organizations can help people to self-care and care for people in their social circle by actually giving information, training, and also empowering people to look after themselves. So that's one info, an information campaign is kind of important. You can do information campaigns through things like Telegram and so on. Uh, and support also can be given to individual people to and to groups, especially manage, managers. And it has to last beyond the pandemic as well. Uh, this is some things that we have done in Miri, which I think was we found it quite helpful uh, we actually made this kind of patient workbook to give to the patient but then it turns out that the healthcare workers in the covid what actually also sort of like the workbook because it's not just to fill time in it also had some mental health tips and also information about the whatever information that we knew about the virus at that time like how long you'll be here when are your, um, uh, how often the swaps will be taken etc and these books are quite disposable so you get it in the ward you use it and we dispose it uh, we also have a hotline, we have two hotlines here where people can message or call and then get support. Uh, we have made, um, we have a few, um, we have made, I think we have two lounges now in our hospital. Lounges need to be char uh, characterized according to the risks that happen and so the infections uh, and with infection control protocols in place. This lounges were something that were actually uh, recommended in this Lancet communication because many people didn't have the time to rest. So this is something that was found to be also helpful. And managers need to be also supported. So part of our MHPSS work was also supporting managers and supporting other, uh, supporting the, supporting the people that they, who, who they are responsible for. Managers need buddies because they also need a break. They, when they are supported, they should be able to help the decision making of they are in, in their particular district, uh, in their particular unit, uh, because junior colleagues often now are suddenly, you know, they are, you know, some decisions are so serious, so it's not easy to make a decision as when you're a junior colleague as well. And um, make sure that people in your unit have actually time and rest, uh, time and uh, the national rest, and working in teams. One thing that has been found helpful is like people should work in one team, but when they are, but they should be rotated to high intensity work to low intensity work. That has been found to help a lot of people's help. And when something bad happens, okay, uh, you have to. Uh, we as people, uh, we have to talk about it. And normally managers have that role to do that, or people who are leading units should do that. Example, let's say like this happened to us in our in our clinic. Actually, I uh, uh, we uh, we had a. We had a sort of an, a person who, we had an exposure for somebody who came to our clinic and was supposedly to be a person under investigation and wasn't wearing a mask. The staff became very anxious and then everybody was like scared. Uh, there was a lot of anxiety. People were scared to work. What do you do about it? We had an honest conversation where I met, we, we met in the clinic. Then we got the infection control officer. And in the end, it turns out it was just misinformation and that, and, uh, and, when you clear out that misinformation, people felt hurt, felt they had a place to vent, and finally we could actually also reach to a constructive consensus. That safe space needs to be created in any part of organizations as well. All right, and also of course helping people again okay, on how to go about quarantine and all of that. And 
nobody should be left behind. We, while we talk about doctors, nurses, we also need to talk about our cleaning staff. We also need to think about our security staff. So we have done, uh, we've kind of also given self-care kits for people who are doing or picking up extra shifts. And that was actually also something that people appreciated. And when, and it's always okay to work together. I think in Sarawak, we have uh, have a Telegram channel that gives out mental health information that helps with our information campaign. We co-produce interventions like uh, with my colleague in Utah, we made an online suicide prevention training for in COVID what so that uh, the staff uh, all can go through that training. It's just 30 minutes and uh, get, get hotlines, as, uh, especially the people like in, who run Befrienders and all, they do a lot of work as well. And of course, specialist services for people who need it. And the last bit is that we see about self, we talk about others, we talk about organization. The whole health system needs to use their platform to help healthcare workers and also to combat stigma. Communication needs to be clear. Uh, the health system has to work for all, not just a select a few people who often get forgotten are people who are working out of state, people who are single, people who have, are single people with dependents, like single mothers. So that this is actually the diversity of healthcare workers that we have. And so everybody needs to be seen and heard because when they are seen and heard, they work better and also they, the, we can get through this. And so that, uh, uh, this is a really good read, just read the boxes. So that at the end of all of this, we have a meaningful nar narrative of living through this pandemic versus something that's of trauma. So that's a bit about what I have to share today. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Ravi. Thank you very much. Uh, and I think a lot of things you mentioned are, are very pertinent and relevant. And I can say from my personal experience, uh, especially the role of the leaders of the teams, the leaders of the sections, I think are extremely important. Um, we're going to come to the questions now. And uh, before I forget, since Ravi was the last speaker, I'm going to address the first question to him. Uh, you, you mentioned that briefly in your presentation about the role of leaders. Uh, I personally feel that that, that that is key. At the end of the day, uh, the person in charge on the ground looks after the entire team. Uh, and they should be close enough to the team members to assess and to know whether whatever levels of anxiety or worries should be addressed. Uh, I wonder whether, because this pandemic of course is huge compared to whatever else we had in the past, whether this is something that leaders have to train to do. Uh, we had no time to prepare as such, we just got on with our work. But what's the, your specific message to leaders uh, of these service areas going forward? Because as uh, DG repeatedly reminded us that this uh, pandemic is going to last for quite a while, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, I think the most important thing is that leaders, I think it starts with the fact that leaders themselves can get affected. That is the most important thing that we also can be affected and you are actually suddenly expected to carry a lot of roles. So I think getting yourself supported is important. Working in a buddy system is something that we have done in MIRI and it's really quite useful, especially for uh, meaning that there's not just one person leading a team, there's another person that you, if you need a break, you can pass that too. So first, again, if you are, if you, you cannot pour from an empty, uh, empty, uh, empty, uh, empty, uh, now this is uh, escaping me, an, an empty teapot can't be pouring. So you had to look after yourself. And then the thing about what leaders can go through for going to training is I think leaders can talk to other leaders who are in this thing and get some ideas about how they are coping about it and how to go about 
to go with uh, to go to uh, to go about what they're doing and including sharing best practices because at the moment evidence is uh, evidence generates with the best practice and all of that. And another thing is, uh, this is the role that I found that the MHPSS team in MIRI actually did, which was I personally think uh, the work of uh, Dr. Adam and Dr. Bawe here was really good, is that they actually let, they actually met the leaders and sort of uh, had sessions with them, working with them to help them face and also including finding out what are their difficulties and also empowering them with skills. So yeah, I think skills is something that they really need to be empowered and also training has to go along on the way and so that they can support. And the best I think any leader can do is actually listen to what's happening in the ground. Meaning that um, let's say you are leading the outpatient clinic, you need to actually step into the clinic once in a while. Let's say you are leading in, a, uh, in an emergency department, you would probably want to see what's happening in the green zone, yellow zone, red zone, and not just what the doctors are facing, even to the part where the cleaners as well as that. So the good leader is someone who knows what's happening in the ground to see challenges and, and build a rapport so that your people can actually come to you when there are problems. Because we will never be able to think of what all can happen, but when something goes wrong, they should bring it to you. And even if you can't solve it, you work towards working together with them actually sort of helps the thing rather than that. So that's a bit about what I can think I can share about that. Okay. Thank you, Ravi. Yeah. Uh, I'll just look at the point. And I think uh, during crisis such as this, something especially unprecedented and nobody has journeyed in this area before in our lifetime. Uh, I think clearly as a leader, you must lead from the front. Mm -hmm. I must say there are leaders who lead from the back, way at the back. And that is, you know, that's not right. And you know who your leaders are if they lead from the back. You have to lead from the front. You cannot send people into harm's way without having some of that experience yourself. And clearly, I think the respect for that leader is stronger when your juniors see you there as well. Obviously, as the head of the section or the head of the team, you may not be doing the nitty gritty every single day. There are other categories of staff doing different jobs. But the fact that if you lead from the front, I think that respect, uh, the appreciation of the difficulties you yourself have personally faced will add a lot of value, especially when it comes to PPEs. It's very easy for a leader to say, oh, now you don't have to wear the N95, the surgical mask is fine, uh, but you never appear in the wall. So I, I think clearly in my personal experience, like the only humble experience uh, advice I dare give to leaders currently on the ground, please, please lead from the front. I think our juniors depend on us to do that. Thank you very much, Ravi. I'm going to move on quickly to the other uh, questions and to other speakers. Uh, I've been especially looking out for the post-mortem questions uh, because uh, Dr. Hafizam is quietly waiting for us for the first lecture. So I, I'm going to go to him first. Uh, Hafizam, are you around? Yes, I'm around. The oh, I see you're waiting anxiously for your questions. I'm going to give it to you first. Okay. Uh, now, uh, obviously, we know that uh, uh, the forensic team cannot be, uh, will not need to do post mortem for every uh, mortality that we have in the country. So, uh, going forward, one of the questions here is how do we choose which COVID 19 mortality case to perform post mortem uh, from now on? Uh, thank you for that particular question. Uh, going forward, uh, we think that uh, the best approach for the next uh, uh, the next post the next cases for 
uh, autopsy or positive COVID-19 cases that died in the hospital, we would like uh, we would like to examine a case of young a young disease person without uh, comorbid and not been admitted for too long in the ward because uh, the finding of the finding uh, diffuse alveolar damage uh, usually if that particular patient been intubated for a long period of time also can be seen in intubated uh, patient disease person so if you want to look for that particular pathology due to covid-19 uh, in our country uh, that particular disease person or that particular subject uh, in our opinion should be a young not uh, not a very old uh, patient and do not have any comorbid based on our experience right now our health system is very good in dealing with uh, covid patient we see that our fatality rate is very low compared with the other country such as in in uh, european country uh, their case report uh, also mentioned about a case that died outside the hospital in which uh, for our setting we do not have that particular uh, we do not have that particular numbers uh, of deceased person died due to COVID-19 outside from the hospital the one that we have right now in Malaysia is mostly uh, died in the hospital so moving forward uh, my uh, our uh, we think that in forensic in forensic services, what we would like uh, to have or examine in order to help clinician understand this particular pathology of COVID-19 is a disease person that is young and do not have any comorbid at all. I think that's very pertinent and relevant going forward. Uh, so basically, uh, we are looking at cases that uh, are not typical as such, isn't it? Like young person with comorbidities or a pattern of disease that's unusual, so rather than the usual elderly person with tons of comorbidities. Uh, the, we have gone through a lot uh, of the cases uh, in the national committee, uh, looking at the mortalities, and uh, as Hafizal mentioned just now, uh, many of them involve older people with comorbidities. Uh, the, the clinical presentation and the progress of the case, it's fairly typical for most of them. Uh, but Certainly going forward, I think what you suggested makes, makes very good sense. There's another question uh, with regards to autopsies. Uh, I know you were very chunky, you got CT scan and everything, so I guess they're asking you this question. What is the indication to perform post-mortem CT scans uh, at HK? To answer this question, uh, the indication to perform post-mortem CT scan in Hospital Kuala Lumpur uh, in general, number one, if that particular post, if if that particular case subjected for legal postmortem, number one. But for uh, COVID nineteen uh, cases right now in Hospital Kuala Lumpur, we also we do perform postmortem CT scan for case died in the hospital, even though do not subject for postmortem examination as a learning curve, Dato. So mm. therefore, we can see that particular uh, radiological image of confirm COVID-19 cases. There are not many uh, cases of COVID-19 subjected for uh, CT scan, even in a living patient. Therefore, in Hospital Kuala Lumpur right now, we already have uh, 10 post-mortem CT scan images of uh, confirmed uh, COVID-19 cases. Oh, I see. Oh, and were there any unusual findings? Uh, 
that particular finding ni that particular finding uh, need to be answered by forensic radiologist datuk oh, okay sorry sorry okay yeah, okay thank you thank you thank you all right okay, okay. okay let's move on uh, there are other questions to deal with and uh, okay we are we will ask the mental health experts some of these questions now there were quite a number of questions in terms of students uh, so let's so maybe Esther, maybe you, you can share some of this uh, from your experience uh, uh, were there a lot of issues regards to students in terms of mental health issues during this uh, mco or cmco Esther? from your Befrienders uh, perspective? Uh, yeah, Datuk, I mean from Befrienders perspective, uh, student, yeah, we have received call, uh, students, calls from students. They are, they are rather, I mean, the calls that I, I receive is, she is very desperate. Lah. She is very desperate. Uh, sorry, what's the, the question want me to answer is? About students, what, what? Uh, you get a lot of calls from students and what were these issues about in terms of uh, and stress for students during uh, MCO or CMCO? Mm -mm. Okay, so for, for this for these students call that I received, although we don't discuss calls, uh, so the type of calls, uh, what is it, it's like this, but generally speaking, uh, generally speaking, students, uh, they are locked in, they cannot meet their friends, so one this is a great um they find that they are lost lah. they miss their friends and they have to stay at home and have to cope with the housework and not only the homework have a new adjustment at home some parents might not that understanding to them they find that they don't quite understand their communication breakdown so so she become so uh, after she said, even I finished my homework, my mom still not happy. Uh, she find it's very difficult to stay at home all this while. And she really hope that the school will reopen soon. January uh, 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 got some call like this. <laughs> well, that's... Oh, I thought you were reading my diary. It sounded like me. Every time I didn't want to run to school, my mother said, you stress up. Right, okay. But, but jokes aside, uh, we always make the assumption that, you know, home is where we get support and we get a lot of stress when we go to work. But I guess, it, I think MCO and CMCO did remind us, do, that's remind us that at home we have stressors of a different kind. Right? Uh, I want to state categorically, I'm not complaining about my wife. So, uh, if my wife is listening, please stop regarding, not referring to me. Okay, thanks. Uh, we'll move on to the next question. Uh, unless you want uh, something else you want to add in uh, our two other, our two psychiatrists, uh, you want to add anything in terms of students before we move to the next uh, question? Yes, Dato. Uh, uh, yes, uh, here. Okay. If I, I may add a few things. Uh, I think in terms of technology, our younger generation, they uh, the uh, primary school student, the adolescent and university students are actually more adept compared uh, to us in terms of technology. So I don't think they don't, uh, I don't, they have any problem to really work through all the technologies that they need to do, their homeworks, their, uh, 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 all their works uh, in uh, diploma, their, their university works and everything. But uh, the, the pressure or stress that they have is actually from external. Number one, as I mentioned by uh, uh, Madam Esther just now, it's actually about uh, the loss of uh, uh, social 
camaraderie or the peer support that they have usually as uh, they go outside from home, number one. Number two, the stress is actually coming from our parents, the parents uh, themselves. Because we know that uh, parents that have their own expectation about how their children need to behave, how their children need to do their homework, how their children need to do things uh, with their own uh, kind of schedule rather than the children's or the adolescent's schedule. So it's actually putting a lot of pressure to our, our child. Now, basically, it's actually the, the peer pressure of the other parents that's actually in the group uh, or the communication group, uh, uh, either it's actually in WhatsApp, Telegram, or whatever it is, because some of our parents is actually not really able to understand the issues with other children, uh, which is, can be issues with lines, issue with data, issue with time, issue with a parent that is working. So all this actually comes together and causing lots of problems to our children that needs to do their things at home while they are actually uh, technically monitored by everyone, every single parent. I, I can see that there's a, uh, evolve, evolve, uh, evolving ways of how teachers uh, teach our children online during this uh, very short period. Uh, initially, there's a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, they put up all of uh, students that Manage to finish the uh, the homework, which which is actually not good for other children that have pro problem with uh, data and everything. But in later part, in which I, I would say that uh, by today, most of teachers is actually more I would say more empathetic, empathetic towards other other children and also other parents that don't have the luxury of data and everything. So the pressure is actually not about uh, need to do the homework. But it's actually the pressure is from outside. Uh, so that's what uh, my point. Yeah, thank you. Right. Yes, I think certainly you are uh, right. The, I think teachers and as well as students are learning how to cope and learn from this experience on the digital platform. Yeah. It's still fairly new for many of us. So yes, there will be certainly stressors as well. Right. Uh, um, Ravi, I'm going to move on to the next bit. I'm going to start with you first and then move back to Esther. Uh, someone brought up the issue of uh, suicides. Uh, now, that's, that's the ultimate, I guess, concern for mental health issues uh, during the pandemic. Uh, were there, did you notice, or were there any increase in uh, issues linked to suicide or parasuicide in, in, in your experience, either at Miri or in other places? Maybe Ravi, start with you first. I guess I think um, we, we, we start with this that uh, with regards to suicide, I think there is no one cause that leads to suicide but i'm quite sure the isolation that covid 19 actually results in can actually worsen existing stresses and sort of complicate the situation uh, uh, as of now and also as of globally we do not have uh, we we don't really know of rates or uh, cases presenting to uh, suicide of course we we might uh, this can be many reasons because one of the thing is uh, when sometimes people are isolated, um, that's one. Then another thing is access to certain lethal methods is also curbed as well as sometimes it's increased. Uh, what what I like to put apart with uh, with the intention for suicide is that, um, in particular, in uh, this is something I think I really like to put forward, which is why we actually did the online suicide prevention training. Is uh, nursing in COVID-19 wards is very, very isolating. Not just for the healthcare workers, but also patients. They don't actually have come in contact 
with people so that isolation itself can foster disconnectedness which can worsen suicidal thinking so i think that's important that the, the way is um so that's why we have to have a sort of we have to proactively intervene in this matter not just uh, and and sometimes and in this kind of situations when we are facing pandemics and we have seen anecdotal reports uh, across the world uh the pandemic can easily foster helplessness among people as well as uh, disconnectedness. So handle, handling it with improving connectedness is one way forward. And um, that's, one of, uh, that's one of the things that we got to do. But I really would like to see about, maybe I want to really hear from Madam Master about any calls because I think they actually pick up a lot more on, uh, especially with, uh, with callers actually that, that, that talk about suicide suicide. Okay, yes, uh, it leads up to Esther. Yes, Esther, were, in terms of defenders, uh, did you get an increased number of calls uh, that may be related to some form of you know, suicide thinking or intention? Yes, and Dato, thank you. I really agree with uh, Dr. Ravi that this isolation uh, regarding COVID uh, really affect, uh, affect uh, this pandem pandemic, really affect our, uh, the mental health of most of our people. So if we are not careful, we also be one of them. <laughs> I mean, now can hear uh, like during MCO. Uh, during MCO, I I'm I myself personally did also receive uh, angry call, uh, uh, angry angry calls. Huh? They just take up uh, just um, the call. It just scold, shout. Uh, they scold quite badly and they just hang up the call they also have such call so and they also have call like they just call up and they we say uh, yeah befrienders jobaru how can how may i help you you say covid covid 19 covid 19 and then they just put down the phone they also have some like this and some callers are they are suicidal yeah they just straight away say um I not feel like living, I mean, I'm going to die. So in this way, we will ask whether are you alone? And normally when after talking, talking, finding it out, like tell me more um, on this and that. So after talking and listening, most of the time we are listening, I will probe a bit and let them talk more. So in this way, in between, I will ask again whether are you still have, are you going to uh, die? I mean, intend to die today? Then he said, oh, that I, I think I will postpone now, but I don't know when it will come back again, the talk. <laughs> so in this, I say it's normal, it's normal. The talk will come back again, but whenever you need to talk to someone, you please reach out, reach out to any, any helplines uh, and reach out to befrienders and befrienders will be there to listen. Uh, that's all that we can do. Excellent. Uh, uh, I want to ask this question about about the move on from from uh, the, sorry this suicide to another aspect of mental health, uh, uh, which is I guess a proxy indicator of mental health issues as well, which is domestic violence. Uh, from the experience from defenders, did we see an uptick or increase in, in issues of domestic violence? I know there are other NGOs dealing with domestic violence specifically. But from the defender's experience, did you experience that the increase in domestic violence issues? 
Yes, our number of in, the calls increase did include this uh, conflict uh, in this family. Uh. Uh, so they normally, actually they have their fixed schedule, uh, like working time, outdoor, indoors. Uh, and then now they're all locked up indoors. So some they will have certain have this conflict, uh, unavoidable, inevitable conflict with parents, with in-laws, see? So there is some they just really can't stand already. They say, huh, I keep on, I don't know why I feel so negative towards my in-laws now, although she don't feel that bad that uh, before the MCO uh, all have space, right? Now seems like no space for her. So she seems that the feelings, the negative feeling is getting stronger and stronger. And she also feel like killing herself. So I find that Family conflict, yeah, we sometimes don't take it as so lightly. It will really lead to suicide too. Wow. And they really complex. need someone to listen to. We are very complex people. Uh. We, we depend on the laws, but we can't stand them that much. So. Oh yeah, but I love my laws. I love my laws. Uh, I'm going to pass to the last question and I can uh, like both our psychiatrists to answer this, to come on board on this. How do we manage internal or external stigma among healthcare workers? Uh, I think this is something very real. Uh, and from my personal experience, especially during SARS, uh, certainly I experienced a lot of stigma even from colleagues at Foster Petroleum And uh, it made me upset and angry. Uh, and certainly and I made it very clear to, to them as well. I was wondering whether you can come on board and just share a little bit about this, uh, Rostam and Rami. Okay, uh, may I start first? Uh, so, we are talking about stigma now. Especially, the stigma is very real because when we are dealing with uh, our psychological first aid uh, among our healthcare workers uh, in our, my hospital in Sonabaya, we uh, receive a lot of reports from our uh, healthcare workers in which they say that they're actually marginalized because of the, uh, working as a healthcare worker profession or prof uh, professionals. Uh, this can, can come from their own uh, spouse can come from their friends, can come from they, their neighbors and their family members, in which can be very uh, demotivating for most of them. Because uh, most of us, uh, in uh, as a healthcare workers, we are uh, an altruistic bunch of people in which we would like to uh, help people. But in this situation in which all people are uh, feeling uneasy about this COVID-19, this pandemic, everything, we are unfortunately become the collateral damage in, uh, in the process because uh, we are dealing directly or uh, with most of the positive patients. Even though uh, comparing with the uh, public, we are actually uh, safer than them in terms of uh, contracting the diseases because we are protecting ourselves properly while we are working. Uh, unfortunately, people cannot see this. So how we want to manage this? Number one is actually support among us. means that we must be together in this situation because uh, to make people understand can be very difficult. To make everyone understand what especially we are dealing with, it's actually very difficult. So it's actually to be with us together. Kita jaga kita. That, that hashtag, right? Number one. Number two is actually very important in terms of our leadership. Uh, the the anecdotal reports that I can get from uh, around 2,000 clients that we manage for psychological first aid in uh, Kedah, we, we can see three things that they need from, from the leaders. Number one, uh, they want the leader to be uh, to be able to smile because they, they, they think that whenever the leaders come down to the grass, the grassroots, uh, they are afraid of them because they are waiting for uh, the ridicule, they are waiting for uh, critics and they are seeing their leaders as a punisher 
in this situation. So we want a leader that can smile together with uh, the, the, the other health care workers, number one. Number two is actually a simple greeting for everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. Assalamualaikum. Hi. How are you? All those small, small things. Very important to all of our healthcare workers. And number three is actually about our ability to connect. Because uh, sometimes uh, uh, the healthcare workers doesn't feel connected to uh, different levels of leadership. So that breaks uh, their hearts in the sense. And at the same time, uh, um, uh, the aggravating the stigma that they have. Because they think that they are now stigmatized by the, uh, the public. They are actually also stigmatized by the leaders and care workers that is not directly involved with the uh, with the COVID nineteen, whether they are not in hybrid hospital or the uh, exact uh, COVID hospital. So there are a few things that essentially uh, making things worse in terms of stigma. Uh, aside from uh, doing this together, I would say that we need to remember it's actually we are doing this for the for the nation. So in order for us to really make things uh, into perspective. We must remember that all of the things that we are doing essentially for the nation, we are doing this for the for uh, for our family. We are doing this for our population. So I would say that we need to put aside all those negative feelings about the people because, as I said just now, we cannot make everyone understand we are what what we are doing. But we can only continue to educate to a certain extent. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Maybe Ravi can add on. Yeah, I think I I think Dr. Rostam has spoken about other people that then but i think i really want to speak about healthcare worker stigma to other healthcare worker stigma which is a real thing that actually it sears up from time to time especially with other colleagues and even can be colleagues within your own department or uh, other parts of the hospital and that is actually the most one of the most distressing because it actually happens to you on a day-to-day -day -day basis a lot of people um, it's it, it, it we when we did our MHPSS work here as well as um, a lot of people still don't know a lot about the virus and okay, of course knowledge about it is evolving but the fact that uh, you know the need for um, the the misinformation that spreads actually fuels the stigma so I think as healthcare workers at least the, the least we can do is be informed and I think that's where the hospital level or actually the unit level that, that you actually have to educate people how exactly COVID spreads and you know what are the precautions and you know how you can meet people and all and just because you work with a COVID-19 person doesn't mean automatically you're as infectious or of that sort and I think and when incidences of stigma is reported and it should be reported action has to be taken where it's not to be punitive to the person who is stigmatizing the healthcare worker but actually more so to educate so that information actually spreads and i think that you know calling out stigma calling out discrimination i think not just in the hospital but everywhere outside uh is also important so that uh uh you know people who do really good work are uh, should not be uh should not be put into at risk you know uh, should not be put at risk of being uh, marginalized within the society so i think information needs to be given as well as there should be avenues as well for people to act when stigma happens to them there should be avenues where uh, you know they can um get uh they can feedback and then it is actually handled and the way you handle it also really matters actually so that's a bit about that Right. Thank you, Ravi. Uh, and I think suffice to say, both of you spoke on this issue. Uh, I think stigma is certainly real, both within and beyond our fraternity. But I think all of us, uh, as one healthcare fraternity, should defend our own colleagues on the front line. Uh, 
uh, I think we do make each other stronger in that sense. Uh, so the time has really caught up with us and I do have to end, but there's one question I just want to quickly address. Uh, I, I won't ask uh, Dr. Hafsam to answer this because I, I think it's a very simple question. Uh, what they ask is, uh, will postmortem health to define actual COVID-19 deaths uh, and therefore reflect true fatality rate? Obviously, the answer is yes, the postmortems will help us, but clearly we can't do postmortem and we probably don't need to do postmortem for all cases. Uh, we already discussed which are the cases we are likely to focus on going forward. Uh, I'm going to end by re uh, letting everyone know that the WHO has given us a new classification a couple of, actually a month plus ago, uh, on how to classify COVID-19 deaths. And uh, in a very simplistic way, they look at COVID-19 deaths, uh, looking at deaths to see whether someone has died because of COVID-19 or whether someone has died with COVID-19. Uh, and the, the, the definitions uh, reflect uh, the way it's been framed. So uh, the National Mortality Committee is going through that and has gone through that and we have adjusted the figures a little bit. Suffice to say uh, that uh, the number of most of the deaths in Malaysia uh, with COVID-19 died because of COVID-19, but there are some cases and I think it's about 7 to 8 percent uh, of these deaths died with COVID-19. They died of some other disease entity, including cancer, coronary artery disease. And I think Hafizam showed one or two cases during the post-mortem findings just now. So this will be, has been adjusted and we leave it to DG to see when and how he wants to release it. But overall, it doesn't change our numbers in a very big way. Our mortality case fatality rate is still relatively low. Uh, I think it runs between 1.4 and 1.5 in that range. So I, I just want to uh, finish off that question quickly. Now, uh, time is caught up with us. I want to thank all the four speakers for their time. Hizam, thank you again. I know we have disturbed you a lot the last couple of weeks. Uh, thank you for your patience. And thank you and, uh, for showing you us all the data and, and all the pictures uh, just now graphically. Uh, to our three speakers, so Hafizam, thank you very much. We try not to disturb you so much. We don't need you so much mortality to do any more post-mortems, okay? We try very hard. Uh, for the three other colleagues, uh, first Esther, uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, and I, I think I've called defenders before a long time ago. I think and my mother scolded me. Yeah, probably hang up halfway. Frank, oh, sorry. Uh, but thank you very much, Esther, for the service you do for the country. I think uh, you help many people during difficult times. Uh, you probably don't say that enough, but thank you for sharing your experience. And uh, I think uh, what you see in the community reflects what we see in the hospitals as well. So Esther, thank you very much. Continue to do good service for, for the country. Thank you very much. Uh, to our two psychiatrists, okay, I know we, I make fun of you all the time, so I apologize. So Dr. Salina, so chill a bit, okay. Hey, Ravi, thank you very much. Okay, I uh, and Rostam, thank you very much both for your perspective and your comments. Um, uh, continue to support and do good work from where you are, uh, both in Aloska and in Miri. Uh, thank you very much again for sharing this afternoon with us. So, uh, so I hope all of us have found some benefit in our, this, our webinar this afternoon and we hope uh, we will catch you again in the next edition in the weeks to come. So with that, thank you very much.